They use the same tactics, whether it be inside of Syria, whether it be in Crimea, whether it be in, um, you know, any other theaters they operate. So they are very predictable. And I mean, and they are known for putting out false videos. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, February 24th, 2022. Over the last several weeks, Russian aggression toward Ukraine has escalated dramatically. Russian President Vladimir Putin announced on February 21st that Russia would recognize the sovereignty of two breakaway regions in Ukraine's east, Donetsk and Luhansk, whose years-long effort to secede from Ukraine has been engineered by Russia. Meanwhile, Russian troops have entered eastern Ukraine as supposed peacekeepers, and the Russian military has taken up positions along a broad stretch of Ukraine's border. Things are moving quickly. We're recording this on Wednesday, February 23rd, and the situation may have changed by the time you listen. Along with the military dimensions of the crisis, there's also the question of how various actors are using information to provoke or defuse violence. Russia has been spreading disinformation about supposed violence against ethnic Russians in Ukraine. The United States and its Western partners, meanwhile, have been releasing intelligence about Russia's plans and about disinformation at a rapid and maybe even unprecedented clip. So today on Arbiters of Truth, our series on the online information ecosystem, we're bringing you an episode about the role of truth and falsehoods in the Russian attack on Ukraine. Evelyn Dueck and I spoke with Olga Lautman, a non-resident senior fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis, who has been tracking Russian disinformation in Ukraine, and Shane Harris, a reporter at the Washington Post who's been reporting on the crisis. It's the Lawfare Podcast, February 24th, the information war in Ukraine. This is a pretty fast-moving story, so I think it might help to situate ourselves. First off, I should say that we're recording on the morning Eastern time of Wednesday, February 23rd. Uh, So by the time you listen to this, just keep in mind that the situation may have changed substantially because things are moving very quickly. Shane, can you give us a short summary of where things stand now regarding Russia's incursion into Ukraine and the Western response? Sure. So as we're talking now on Wednesday morning, Vladimir Putin on Monday, Washington time anyway, um, signed a decree recognizing these two so-called breakaway republics in eastern Ukraine as independent entities. Uh, and, and his speech essentially asserted that Ukraine was not a sovereign country. He then ordered his military forces into those eastern regions, he said as peacekeeping uh, forces, the Biden administration and multiple governments in Europe responded by saying that this was either an invasion or the beginning of an invasion. There was a little wiggle room around that word, but essentially saying this is a provocative act. It's a violation of international law, as President Biden said, uh, and there will now be repercussions for that, as these leaders had promised. We'd heard a lot for months now, particularly from President Biden, that if Russia invaded Ukraine, Ukraine, there would be historic crippling sanctions directed at its financial system, its economy, at prominent Russians. We saw some of that on Tuesday, what President Biden described as a first tranche of sanctions that were significant, but I don't think you could call them the kind of crippling torpedo to the hull sanctions that we had envisioned. Uh, And what seems to be the case now is that leaders are regarding this 
incursion into Ukraine, this invasion, if you will, as possibly the first step in eventually what will be further pushing into Ukraine, possibly even attacks on the capital, but that essentially Putin has not launched a full-scale attack yet. And so the sanctions themselves will be incremental in nature. I think one important caveat to all of that, uh, while we saw lots of capitals issue kind of sanctions against like Russian banks, Russian individuals, et cetera, the kind of stuff you're used to seeing, uh, Germany announced that it was halting authorization of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which is this pipeline that would be a major conduit of natural gas from Russia to Germany. That was a big deal. That one actually caught, I think, some European leaders by surprise, according to our reporting at the Washington Post. Um, So we should not discount that, even though we haven't seen the sort of the full onslaught of sanctions from the U.S. and from European countries, that Nord Stream 2 decision in response to Russia's invasion was a big deal. So now we wait. We wait to see on Wednesday whether Vladimir Putin sends in more forces further into Ukraine. Does he do a strike on Kyiv? Are there cyber attacks? What other kinds of provocations uh, will he make that would then presumably trigger another round of responses from the West? That's extremely useful context. Thank you. And, you know, obviously we want to acknowledge that this is this is a broader issue, but being arbiters of truth, we're obviously going to focus on the information operations aspect of this, but to acknowledge that we're not ignoring and we, we are cognizant of the broader impacts of this and the, the human impacts. Olga, you were talking before we started recording about some of the information warfare updates that were happening uh, even overnight in the last sort of 12 hours. Would you be able to sort of uh, talk a little bit about that and what you're seeing at the moment? Okay, I um, just want to pull back to yesterday, Tuesday, um, where things took a turn uh, for the worse. Putin uh, appealed and received uh, approval from the Federation Council for use of armed forces and aircraft outside of Russian soil. That was the breaking news. And shortly after, strategically, without fail, an article uh, popped up, breaking news that there was another terrorist attack into Russian-occupied territories that Putin illegally annexed that Shane just spoke about. Since then, overnight, I've spoken to people in Ukraine, and Ukrainian troops have begun receiving text messages by Russian military saying they received approval for attacks and for Ukrainian military to surrender. There have been fake orders passing around that Ukrainian officials had signed you know, in order to begin evacuation of healthcare facilities across the country. And the most troubling is that the OSINT accounts on social media who have done an amazing job tracking all the military movements for the past several months, quite a few of them were taken offline. They were locked out in what looked like a bot and troll attack, and they were locked out out of their Twitter accounts. And then on top, uh, you continue seeing now this breaking news literally every few hours of another terrorist attack and that Ukrainian forces, you know, are conducting these terrorist attacks in Donetsk and Luhansk. And uh, that's it. The information warfare has drastically increased over the past 72 hours, I would say. Both Russia and the West have been making use of information throughout this period. And Olga, you just gave us a great overview of what Russia has been doing. We wanted to have you both on because, Olga, you've been tracking Russia's activities 
uh, and Shane, you've been doing some really interesting reporting on what the U.S. intelligence community has been doing and its approach to information disclosure. Olga, I want to turn back to you to start with. You could just give us some really good examples of specific tactics that Russia has been using or seems to have been using. Could you give us a, a sort of high altitude sense of how Russia has been approaching the information side of this conflict? It seems like active measures, information operations, whatever you want to call them, are playing a, a big role here. Is that right? Absolutely. So it began um, last Friday, and that's when you saw an increase in their information warfare. So there are two fronts that they have been focused on. One, the domestic front. Domestically, well, to give you a bigger overview, um, on Saturday, evacuations were issued by uh, Russia's installed puppets in these two regions that Russia has been occupying since 2014. They gave imminent evacuation orders. Everyone has to leave. Women, children, elderly were like ripped out of their home, you know, sent uh, on buses to get out. It's very hard to get a true number of how many people left. Russia's claiming close to 70,000. But, you know, from some images, the buses didn't even seem that full. But they began this, they created this humanitarian crisis. All men they signed a, a conscription for 18 and to 55, but there were reports that 15, 16-year-olds on the ground were being dragged out of their homes and forced to stay and, and you know, go into uh, for training and service. So once this began, and these evacuation orders that were issued, thanks to Bellingcat, they revealed that these videos were actually recorded a few days prior to this, you know, imminent threat that suddenly emerged and um, people had to leave their homes like immediately. They started immediately sounding sirens and it was, I mean, complete chaos. And then right after you saw this propaganda playing inside of Russia where they, um, kind of painted themselves as like a savior by taking these re, uh, these refugees in. And it was article after article after article of, you know, this uh, school is going to take this amount of people in and this school is going to take that amount and this city's uh, willing to accept this amount of refugees. So domestically, they painted themselves as a savior that suddenly this huge crisis happened. These people had to leave their homes and that Russia is coming to their aid. I mean, the emergency minister even, you know, several times this uh, information popped out that they're sending psychologists uh, to where these refugees are to counsel them because of all the trauma they've been. Now, Russia manufactured this trauma. I mean, so... So that was happening at the same time in between every single report of, you know, Russia being a savior, you suddenly saw an increase in terrorist attacks and an increase in shelling, civilians being killed, a highway being mined, apartment buildings, five of them collapsing. And you saw this significant increase of attacks inside Donetsk and Luhansk. And Russia was playing it up. And now Ukrainian military up to probably, I don't know, 2 a.m. overnight was still under the order not to respond to avoid provocation. So they are in their trenches. They have Western media with them. 
They have not responded. They've done everything to prevent, you know, uh, causing any kind of provocations for Russia to have justification to enter. And this is basically what the media has been playing uh, Russian media over the past several days is the refugee crisis that they created. And at the same time, these terrorist attacks that are ongoing. And to add one more thing, they also um, have been reporting, uh, you know, that Ukrainian military have targeted infrastructure, including water facilities and power plants. Red Cross did confirm that um, the, there was a shortage of water because the water facilities were targeted, damaged. And this is happening by the Russian mercenaries and operatives inside of Donetsk and Luhansk. So obviously the information warfare is happening on a number of fronts and through a number of channels, both, you know, inward facing towards the Russian population and then externally, both towards Ukraine and and the West. And then it uses a number of different channels, including, you know, official media and and Putin himself, and then things like uh, social media accounts and things like that. And I'm wondering, Olga, if you could sort of disaggregate that for us, sort of what the different approaches and channels are and how they differ. So the messaging begins, like, for instance, they, um, about two weeks ago, they used, which uh, was an interesting tactic, there are a few loyal um, Kremlin oligarchs inside of uh, Ukraine, one of them, Medvedchuk, who is um, right now under house arrest for treason for his, you know, dealings um, and assisting Russia during the 2014 occupation. So his people actually set off a chain of events that, I mean, it was interesting because they started specifically with his people and then kind of pulled out and and grabbed onto it, and it was all coordinated. So one of his people put out that, you know, President Zelensky is preparing a massacre of uh, all Russians inside of Ukraine. And he basically said that Ukrainian Nazis are going to exterminate people, and that, you know, and he put this out on his Telegram channel. Immediately, within two minutes of him putting it out on his Telegram channel, Russia's main outlet picked up this news. And then from there, it set off a whole new narrative that of genocide. And it went from the top to the bottom. You saw Putin on, on the stage with Chancellor Schultz, um, you know, accusing Ukrainians of committing genocide. The foreign ministry has continuously repeated this genocide thing. And um, and it goes through the Russian media. The Russian media, forget it, according to him, them, all Russians are already dead inside of Ukraine because they've been really harping on all these, you know, baseless claims. And there is absolutely zero proof, even with all these terrorist attacks that they are putting out into the information sphere, they have no proof of any Ukrainian soldier conducting these attacks. So they're baselessly claiming you know, about these genocide attacks, about these terrorist attacks. And that gives Putin a narrative, you know, justification that he needs to go and save his Russian-speaking population and Russians inside of Ukraine because they are being, you know, exterminated. And they have latched onto this, and then it went to the terrorist attacks showing the specific targets, and um, that's it. And as of now, I mean, uh, this morning there they had announced the withdrawal of Russian diplomats from Ukraine. But this morning they made a very big show that that's it. They put out a video of Russian diplomats inside of Ukraine. They're closing their 
embassy and consulates and packing up and leaving. And they're doing this again to create even more fear that that's it. We're gone. And now, you know, people are like the diplomats are gone and now Russia will start attacks. So Shane, I want to turn to you and ask you about the way that the U.S. in particular and the West writ large has approached responding to these narratives. There's been a slow drip of news reports seemingly in real time or quasi real time of U.S. intelligence about what Russia is planning. So, for example, Olga's mentioned, you know, disinformation about supposed Ukrainian attacks on ethnic Russians or Russian speakers within Ukraine. You've reported about that. You've reported in the Post about an an on-the-record warning um, by the Biden administration that, quote, Moscow is considering filming a fake attack against Russian territory or Russian-speaking people by Ukrainian forces as a pretext to invade Ukraine. I cannot think of another instance, um, except for perhaps Iraq, which is different for reasons we can discuss, uh, in which a U.S. administration was providing this level of intelligence to the public in real time. What do you make of this strategy? What is its goal? Oh, well, I just to, to, to kind of footstomp what you said there, too, in my 20 plus years as a reporter covering the intelligence community, I've never seen an administration um, declassify this much intelligence and we can talk about the nature of it for the purpose of putting it out publicly in order to shape a policy narrative, really. I mean, partly in order to counter Putin's claims and also to rally, but but also to rally European nations and allies together and sort of create a base set of facts that everyone can agree on. It just, they don't do this historically. And in fact, in 2014, after Putin's forces uh, invaded and then annexed Crimea, there was a lot of intelligence that the Obama administration had that it did not release. And that frustrated a lot of officials who were there at the time who I think wanted to shine a light on Putin and his activities and say more about what they knew. So, you know, with that sort of understanding that this is really unusual, I mean, what I make of this is that the Biden administration has decided that, you know, Putin is going to continue with his disinformation campaign as Olga. So, you know, eloquently described all of the facets of it and the way that it is comes from the Kremlin and it gets picked up in social media. I mean, you know, we all understand that he's pretty masterful at the disinformation piece of it, which is not to say that like, you know, European leaders and American leaders are buying it, but it does shape the information space. The Biden administration, I think, has come out and said, we want to do an information operation. Now, what they look at and they say, like, look, we have facts on our side. We can back up the claims that we're making. And to an extent, that is true. I think where that is probably arguably most true is when they have released information about troop buildups, Russian troop buildups on the Ukrainian border. And the first one of these, you know, we don't call them leaks in the administration. They get to call them authorized disclosures because a leak is when you put the information out and you're not supposed to. You're doing it sort of uh, against the rules. These are what you call authorized disclosures. And there was one uh, in December of 2021. Uh, in the Washington Post. And what uh, we reported at the time was this buildup of Russian forces and the administration and U.S. officials believing that they could go up to 175,000 troops. And what happened was that you had imagery to go with that, you know, satellite imagery that people could look at and see these troops and the tanks and the equipment massing on the border. And importantly, there was commercial satellite imagery, um, which is more in the open source intelligence realm, that backed up those assertions. So you kind of saw this kickoff 
from the administration, I think, with putting out information that showed things you could count, things you could see that pointed towards um, uh, a ratcheting up of hostilities. Then you have this other category of information that's being put out that is you know, clearly coming from the intelligence community in the U.S. and possibly in allied services about things that you can't easily see. So, for instance, you mentioned reports that there was uh, Russia was planning a false flag attack, that they were going to stage this elaborate attack by Ukrainian forces, either on Russian forces or possibly on Russian speakers in eastern Ukraine, that they were going to use corpses to stand in for the victims, that they were going to hire professional mourners to pretend that they were grieving over loved ones. That appears to be based, as best we can tell, on communications that the U.S. and its allies have intercepted about Russian authorities talking about doing this, which is a fairly standard channel of intelligence. You intercept your adversaries talking about their plans and their intentions. And when you don't have a human source next to the decision maker, and by all accounts, from my reporting right now, the United States does not have sort of a person in the Kremlin telling them what Putin is thinking. Um, you rely on that signals intelligence, that communications intelligence to tell you what's happening. We saw this come out as well when the British government put out a statement uh, a month or so ago um, through their foreign ministry that the Kremlin was planning a scheme by which they would install a pro-Kremlin government in Kiev. There too, where's that coming from? What's the information based on? In that case, it was actually information collected by the United States, which they then passed to the British and asked them to release, which was also interesting because there too, you, you saw the administration in the U.S., wanting one of their allies to also be speaking out authoritatively through intelligence on this subject. So it didn't just look like it was only coming from the White House. And I think the White House was sensitive to the idea that if it's only the, the U.S. side pushing out this information, it's going to, you know, maybe people will question our credibility. Now, as journalists, we do have to question the credibility of the information. You can't see the signals intelligence report. They're not going to disclose, you know, whose phones they're tapping or how they're finding out what, you know, a brigade commander in, in, in Russia on the border is saying and doing. And there we have to rely on, you know, what we believe is the credibility of our sources uh, and, and then bring that information forward to people and, and caveat it by saying, look, this is based on classified information that they're disclosing. But I think collectively what you see here is the, the Biden administration and its allies, I think, doing a fairly effective job of using intelligence to paint a picture about what they know about Putin's plans, Putin's intentions, and and being very careful, I think, along the way to say the limits of the information. We, you know, you hear repeatedly officials saying we don't know that Putin has made a decision, which is why it was so dramatic when last week President Biden, in an address from the White House, said, "I do believe he has made a decision, Putin, to invade." And then we pretty quickly reported that that too was from a source of intelligence that the administration has a lot of confidence in. So they've been able to kind of set the table and say, this is what Putin's about. Don't believe his lies. You know, we can give you solid information in some cases. We can give you our word in others. I, I think that it didn't deter Putin, obviously, from acting. But I think that when we look at this retrospectively, you can make the argument that disclosing that much information perhaps made it easier for allies to come together. It also put a lot of pressure, frankly, on Germany and on France, who were throughout this whole period of the buildup of forces along Ukraine, 
were a little more skeptical, frankly, that Putin was going to invade, um, were uh, uh, not as forward leaning about the likelihood of an invasion. Um, having that information out there, I think, gave them less room to maneuver. But ultimately, you know, they've come around and are standing with their allies. And as I said, the Germans took that fairly remarkable step of mothballing Nord Stream 2. So maybe you chalk that one a little bit up to a win for the, uh, the Biden administration and the information column. And so there has been reporting from the New York Times, among other places, that the strategy, as you hint, is really coming right from the top. Uh, the Times reported it was directly from Director of National Intelligence, Avril Haines, and CIA Director Bill Burns, and partly as a response to what happened in 2014 when Russia seized Crimea from Ukraine and there was a lot of disinformation flying around, um, including most notably falsehoods that were spread by Russia around the shootdown of flight MH17, which was a a passenger airliner that was shot down by Russian organized separatists using using Russian arms in Ukraine's east, and the, the U.S. then struggled to respond. Shane, do you have any sense of why uh, the U.S. has changed its strategy from 2014? Is this kind of a, a lessons learned situation? I think there's a, there is a lessons learned. Uh, important to remember too that a lot of the people who are in positions, uh, senior positions, who are you know below the level of the directors, and also people who are in the public affairs offices of a lot of these agencies, by which I mean DNI, CIA, importantly also the State Department and the NSC, they were around in 2014 as well. And these are people whose job it is to shape the information space, to be constantly aware through their interactions with reporters like myself and their consumption of news, both domestically and abroad. Uh, I think they felt a level of frustration and they feel much more in the driver's seat right now uh, and frankly, kind of on their game. This is what they're paid to do is to go out there and tell a story. You know, usually we call that spinning. Some people sort of dismiss this derisively call it that, but they're there to try and put forward the arguments that an administration is making on any number of things from domestic policy to foreign policy. And I think that they feel like this is fitting into that category. I think you have in Bill Burns and in Avril Haines, two people who just fundamentally get it when it comes to how the government needs to be more forthcoming with what it knows if it hopes to achieve a policy objective. And again, 2014, good example of where, you know, they didn't win points by being quiet. Uh, and to your point about the shoot down of the plane, I remember being part of a briefing of senior officials in the intelligence community who were responding to that and were showing us all kinds of really good information, uh, including stuff that I think that they were able to declassify to show why they thought it was, you know, the Russians doing this. And even that briefing was unusual. Uh, in fact, I remember looking around the room and seeing so many reporters in it and even like joking. It's kind of dark humor, but I said, wow, if you really wanted to take out all of the national security reporters in Washington, here we are in a room. Um, but even that was like forced and they were sort of, you know, like hiding behind anonymous officials and they didn't want to come out too much and say what they knew when I think everybody understood, you know, what the real story was. So I think there's there's lessons learned from even that experience. And I think, you know, I would even draw an analogy, too, to the way that the CIA and Director Burns have handled the whole issue around so-called Havana syndrome, these strange constellations of, of symptoms that have afflicted intelligence officers and diplomats and other government personnel and caused them debilitating 
illnesses that some people think could be the form of a directed energy attack, maybe by the Russians. You know, Bill Burns went on 60 Minutes and talked about that last Sunday. Um, senior intelligence officials have met with reporters, including myself, multiple times to talk about that. I pointed that to say that I think that you have people in charge of these agencies who see the value in engaging with the press and engaging with the public and sharing all of the information that they know. Um, and who I think, frankly, believe that the intelligence community classifies too much. Director Haynes has actually been on the record recently, I believe, about that, saying we overclassify information in this community. And I have yet to meet an intelligence officer in my 20 plus years who thinks that the government doesn't classify enough. Uh, so there's been a change here. And I don't know if this is a one-off for this particular crisis with Ukraine, but I have to imagine that, the, that, again, even though it ultimately did not deter Putin, and perhaps it wasn't really ever designed to deter him, um, I have to think that this has proven the case for a lot of proponents of this strategy and that they're going to point to this again and again for the next crisis to say, look, push out this information that we have, this incredible intelligence that we spend billions of dollars a year collecting. Let's use it. So, Olga, I'm curious for your thoughts on this and this US strategy and whether you think it's been effective at all in diffusing Russian disinformation in your view. I absolutely in, am in 100% agreement with Shane and everything he just said. Look, I'm from the region and, you know, and I've seen disinformation from the Kremlin, I mean, my whole life. I mean, even going back to Soviet days. And U.S. intelligence, British intelligence, they have a lot of information that they have, you know, have withheld over the past, you know, attacks of uh, Russian-led attacks in Syria in uh, when they annexed Crimea. And Russia has always controlled the narrative. They are winning in the information space and they control the narrative. They set the narrative, they control the narrative, they get the narrative out. Then they have their, you know, bots and trolls to amplify the narrative and whatever they want you to believe is what you will believe. And, um, and you will definitely see it. I mean, even if I, you know, anyone who knows what they're doing, you're still going to step back. You'll understand what is happening. But for people who don't follow the region, they will uh, not know the difference. And Russia puts out a lot of conflicting um, disinformation narratives in order to confuse people. Same thing with MH17, same thing with the annexation of Crimea. So people who don't follow the region closely will just throw up their hands and give up and they don't know what is true. This is the first time that I have seen the U.S. administration be successful in actually putting Russia on the defense. I have never seen them so thrown off because they are used to putting out the narrative. And here they are in defense mode because U.S. officials are putting out all the intelligence they're receiving as they receive it. And Russia is forced to respond instead of to confidently, you know, push what they want to push their propaganda. So I think this is very effective. I don't know if they're going to continue doing it, you know, for other issues going forward. But as far as with Russia, U.S. finally gained an upper hand in a very crucial situation. Would this stop Putin from attacking? No, I've been, you know, documenting everything that's happening. This operation that, you know, is about to unfold is, has been put together and, preparations have been made and stages 
in stages over the past year. So nothing would have stopped Putin from attacking. There was no deterrent. The negotiations were all, you know, Russia didn't go into negotiations into good faith. They did it more to buy time so they could line up their logistics on the border and at the same time to probe for weaknesses among the allies. But this is what U.S. needs to continue doing because if they have information, they need to get ahead of it. And Russia needs to be put on the, you know, end where they're responding, scrambling to respond, deny instead of constantly presenting, you know, what they want the world to see. And as far as all, you know, Sheen had touched on the reports of the staged videos. And I know it sounds so far-fetched to Americans, you know, hearing staged videos, crisis actors, but this is what Russia has done. We have probably since um, 2014's invasion, we have uh, seen at least 4,000 plus videos that were fake. This is what they do. I mean, they stage events, they, you know, in order to shape their narrative. And it affects everything between Syria, between, you know, uh, Ukraine and wherever else they operate. So as far-fetched as it sounds, this is one of their tactics that they have been using for a long time. And I mean, they did the same in Chechnya when they, you know, launched the second Chechen war. So I hope that uh, the U.S. administration deals with Russia this way and that we finally have, you know, some kind of control of the information space versus Russia's disinformation, you know, space being amplified. Some commentators, including, uh, I think, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, have suggested that this constant stream of information and warnings from the US, the UK, and others may have created sort of unnecessary panic within Ukraine. So I'm, I'm curious for both your thoughts on whether there's a risk that in releasing a flood of information to kind of counter the flood of disinformation from Russia, uh, the US and the West just sort of ends up creating confusion. Olga, I'll, I want to turn to you first, and then I'm interested to get Shane's thoughts. I don't think so. I think the information needs to be put out. Ukrainians have been under Russian attack for eight years. They're used to, you know, being uh, exposed to disinformation. They're very savvy of, you know, how to understand what disinformation is. Um, Yes, the information that U.S. is putting out is creating a panic. Zelensky, for his, you know, side is trying to calm the situation because he has a country to run and he doesn't want to cause the panic in the streets. He doesn't want to run on banks. He doesn't want, you know, the collapse of the economy, but it is very crucial to prepare people of what's coming. There is absolutely, you know, no value in hiding information that, you know, especially when it comes to the existential threat of a country. So in this situation, I'm with the United States on this because, you know, and I've spoken with people inside and granted the warnings are extremely frightening and whatnot, but they're happy that the warnings are coming because they, you know, it's good to be prepared for what is going to happen. Yeah, I agree with Olga on that, on on, on a... On a personal level, you know, I'm somebody who believes that information is a great antidote to anxiety and fear. And and I think that there is a public obligation as well, arguably, if, you know, a government has 
credible information that, you know, many, many people may be about to be killed by another country's actions. I mean, I think you can make the case that that's, that's good to put out. I mean, I know from talking to my own sources, including advisors close to President Zelensky, it has kind of driven them crazy that there has been this sort of constant drumbeat of warnings coming from the administration because they have been very concerned about financial repercussions. They don't want the run on the banks. They don't want public panic. At the same time, what they'll turn around and tell you is, look, if you walk through the streets of Kyiv, the restaurants are full, the cafes are full, people are prepared for this. And so I don't think there's been a, a kind of a mass public panic over this. And so, in fact, in some ways, the information has actually been very helpful because it's told people what to expect and they can get prepared. I will say I think there's potentially a risk in the administration strategy, the Biden administration strategy, of kind of making not definitive predictions. They're not predicting. They're, they're very careful to say we don't predict an intelligence, but they are painting a picture that looks almost inevitable. And if Putin were to, you know, only sort of go a little bit into the east of Ukraine and sort of stop there. And personally, I think that's not likely, but that's just me. You know, you could see a blowback <clears throat> where people looked at the administration and said, wow, you guys were painting this as if it was going to be this major war and a calamity. And it turned out that nah, actually he he didn't really do all that much more than we might have expected on the low end. I suspect the administration, though, would be perfectly fine with that. I mean, they've even said publicly, I think they'd rather be accused of overhyping than underreacting just to kind of summarize their position. So yeah, I think that the, the lesson from this is probably going to be err on the side of disclosing more, take steps to minimize the possibility of panic. But they kind of did that, arguably. Uh, and, and also by constantly using information as a way to try and force open a diplomatic channel. Obviously, it didn't work, but that's another way, I think, of sort of putting out lots of scary information, but also telling people there may be a way out of this or a way to solve this problem. You can do, a government can do both of those things at once. I do think that this question of what happens with, you know, releasing intelligence about things that may not come to pass gets to something that I kind of hinted at earlier, which is the question of trust. You know, obviously, the the U.S. and Russia are playing an extremely different game here, but it does strike me that at a certain level, you know, you have the Kremlin saying, trust us about this, you know, falsehoods that we're, we're putting out about what's happening in Ukraine. And then in the U.S., on the other hand, we're in this strange situation that you've hinted at, Shane, where, you know, you're, you're a reporter who spends your time, you know, trying to ferret out often information that the government would rather not be made public. And reporters are now in this position of reporting information that's given to them directly from the intelligence community, which is an institution that has seen sort of steadily declining levels of trust in the United States. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts about that dynamic and whether there's a, a risk that, you know, if, if the intelligence community is providing information to the press about things that don't come to pass, whether that could undermine public trust in these institutions in the U.S. Yeah, I do think that's a risk. And it's something that's kind of been in my mind, too, as we've been reporting these stories. As a reporter, I feel pretty comfortable if I'm given, you know, images, let's say satellite images that, you know, can be corroborated by multiple sources, including commercial sources showing a buildup and then reporting, you know, according to analysts, they think it could mean X. And then we can caveat that and say, but, you know, if we want to, we can we can even downplay that, you know, those estimates if we want. So you can get lots of input from different sources where it gets a little trickier is when you are 
being told something that is, you know, a piece of information that is coming from a classified channel that's not widely available. That's, a, you know, that's an intelligence source. And there you really have to, I think, as a reporter, I have to do two things. One is, you know, assess the credibility of the person or the people who are giving me the information, which is what you do in any case, but especially you have to be rigorous when it comes to intelligence and when it comes to intelligence that's bearing on a crisis that is unfolding. And the second is we try and corroborate that as best we can, maybe not from other sources, because the source may be unique in this case, but to try and understand, does this fit with you know, a playbook? Is it plausible what they're telling us? I mean, to Olga's point about this alleged video that the Russians wanted to make, yeah, it'll strike a lot of Americans as that, that just sounds crazy. Why would they do something like that and think it was going to fool anybody? Well, it's kind of in the playbook, isn't it? And we can look at some of these things we're being told and understand that it doesn't sound so crazy, actually. And, you know, and part of it, too, is, you know, it, when we're hearing this information, you know, it's not necessarily, you know, without going too deeply into it, where we're sort of like being, you know, given a press release and someone says, here, print this. Some of this, you know, we're hearing about on our own uh, from sources that are not the authorized channels, or there are places that we can corroborate it elsewhere with sources that we already have in the intelligence community and get more fidelity on this and sort of get somebody to back it up. So it's not just us taking the word of the authorized discloser, if I can use that phrase. But you've got to be aware of that every time you're reporting and be really careful about how you're wording these things and, and, and not making it sound as if this is definitive, it's going to happen, there's no question, there's no doubt. You've got to put those caveats in where you can find them and where necessary. And yeah, to your point earlier, Quinta, I mean, one big reason we do this, aside from the fact that it's good basic journalistic practice, is Iraq. I mean, this was another national security crisis where not all journalists, but many, um, sort of took it at face value that the intelligence that they were being told indicated Iraq had weapons of mass destruction, was accurate. Uh, officials had confidence in it. Many of them did, by the way, so that helped bolster their case. But I think we are all constantly aware of that experience. Nobody wants to repeat that. At the same time, that was a situation, too, in which there were breakdowns in basic journalism tradecraft, such as trusting a single source for the information, you know, maybe not giving weight to the counter arguments or the evidence that Iraq didn't have weapons of mass destruction. So lots of lessons learned there. Um, and I think that, that, you know, while these are not one-to-one -one situations, there are analogies to be drawn. And I think all reporters are, are keeping those in mind as we cover the Ukraine crisis. And obviously one big difference between Iraq and now is the presence of OSINT, so open source intelligence. And Olga, you were mentioning at the top the, how important this has been over the past few weeks in particular. So I'm wondering if you could just give us a little bit more detail and colour around that. What kind of OSINT has there been? What were the sources of it? And how has it been important? Yes, thank you so much, because this Iraq narrative came out, and I understand people not under, you know, having full faith in the intelligence community from prior events, but in this situation, it is different. I mean, with Iraq, it was, you know, WMDs being hidden somewhere underground, you know, US, we had to trust U.S. intelligence that it was there. Here, you have close to 190,000 Russian troops and formations on Ukraine's border from Belarus, all Russia, Transnistria. 
it's not that hard to hide these Russian troops. It's not that hard to see these makeshift hospitals that are being put up. It's not that hard to get information from the front lines of what's happening. So here there's a very big difference because everything is out in the open. Everything you're seeing it. I mean, we, for us who have been following this, we have seen this buildup beginning the end of September. Um, well, the buildup actually began in February of last year. They left their military equipment behind, rotated their troops back out. And then you saw in September it again escalate and they started moving, you know, military equipment. And all the videos were coming from social media. People were uploading from town to town to town, tanks on rail stations, you know, traveling towards Ukraine's border. And you could literally track it by the day of where these tanks were, what the signatures of the tanks were, where they, you know, were dropped off, what was happening, how they moved, how this convoy was being like put together. So everything is open source. So in this situation, you know, Russia can't really deny and say, oh, well, you know, U.S. messed up with uh, WMDs in Iraq. We're here, we can just, you know, there's plenty of evidence. And I wanted to touch on another thing Shane said, as far as with panic, you know, U.S. intelligence has been putting out information over the past, you know, few months as they receive it about everything that Russia is preparing to do. Ukrainians on the street, like Shane said, have been very calm. They're going to work. They are going to theater, cafes. The first time that Ukrainians, the mood changed was on Monday when Putin delivered the speech. That is when everyone from Ukraine, my family and friends all texted me and said, that's it, you know, things had just took a turn for the worse. So it wasn't U.S. intelligence putting out the information that, you know, sounds extremely like frightening that, that uh, the, uh, you know, there are a list of assassinations of activists and journalists and politicians and that the government will be overthrown. And it was Putin himself in his speech where he denied the sovereignty of Ukraine and basically said that it belonged to Russia. And so that I think is very important to note, you know, and again, like Shane said, when dealing with Russia, they use the same tactics over and over and over. So their playbook is, I mean, as predictable things that I even post on Twitter, you know, a week prior come to fruition. People are like, how do you know this? I'm like, they are repeating the same exact thing. You know, they use the same tactics, whether it be inside of Syria, whether it be in Crimea, whether it be in, um, you know, any other theaters they operate. So the, they're very predictable. And I mean, and they're known for putting out false videos. I remember in um, uh, 2017, I believe, there was the defense ministry temporarily put up this irrefutable evidence that U.S. was escorting ISIS in Syria. This irrefutable evidence ended up being a Call of Duty clip, and some gamer recognized it, and then it turned into a big thing, and the defense ministry took that out. It was a satellite image. That was taken out from a video game. So, I mean, this is something they've done. This goes back to Soviet days, their tactics only were perfected due to social media and how quick they can spread their message now. I just wanted to add one note on Olga's great point about Putin's speech on Monday, which was 
it was it was frightening and bizarre and and just riddled with historic dubious history. But to the point that this was a moment that caught people's attention. My colleague Michael Birnbaum at the Post had this great reporting, uh, which we put in the paper today, that there was this meeting of foreign ministers in Paris uh, on the crisis, and as they were sitting down to dinner at this you know luxury five star hotel, Putin starts speaking, and they all start turning to their phones and either watching a live stream of it or seeing the reaction from journalists on Twitter. And as Michael reports it from somebody who was in the room, that was this moment where basically they all stopped and they too were shocked and they were listening. And you could see that even among people in the room, his source said, who might have been not necessarily allied with Russia, but maybe been, you know, not as hard on Russia as some of the other allies have been, that they kind of looked at each other and said, this is this is done. I mean, this is just nuts. And so the power of Putin's own words are something that causes people to panic. It causes people to react. So just to amplify exactly what what Olga said, there, you know, it, it's people and particularly policymakers can discern, you know, in these statements, and they paid very close attention to what he said on Monday. And according to our reporting, that speech probably had more to do with shaping the European sanction response and the Nord Stream two response than the actual insertion of the troops. Just to add to what Shane said, I have, you know, one friend inside of Ukraine who is Russian and he stays out of politics and he, you know, told me over the past several months that I'm, you know, being hyperbolic, nothing is happening. Right after the speech, he got his papers ready, got in the car and started taking his family to head for the border. So, I mean, that speech was what changed everything, as Shane said. Yeah, and it does sort of also raise the question about what is the role of social media here? You know, over the last half decade, we've been talking so much about disinformation operations on social media and things like that. And it's obviously really important. But as the two of you were just saying, I mean, when Putin is going on TV and saying these things, um, it sort of puts things into perspective, I think. But I do also want to ask about another sort of geopolitical dynamic here and, and still, you know, the dynamics on the internet, which is the role of TikTok in all of this, um, which has been a surprising source of imagery about troop movements for a dance app. And it's kind of bizarre how significant that has been when it's obviously an app based in China. And I'm wondering if there's any reason to be concerned about that dynamic at all, because it seems to me that, you know, all of this information is so important. You were just talking about it, Olga, how how crucial OSINT has been. But it also seems like we're so dependent. Um, what's available depends on the rules and choices of the social media platforms. And they could be taking things down. They could be uh, amplifying certain things that we don't even know about. And so I'm wondering if you're concerned about any of that at all or your thoughts on that. I'm not concerned at all on that front, only because, yes, there's a lot of disinformation that can be uploaded. But at the same any video time videos, um, you know, come on TikTok of showing a trains with military equipment moving through Tomsk or some other Russian city. I mean, there is someone who is on social media in the West who has relatives or friends who can text them to verify, did, is this happening? Can you ask around? So I think a lot of it, I mean, the crucial thing is not to take the information on social media because I have contacts inside of Russia and Ukraine. Anytime I see something, you know, that kind of looks 
you know, something questionable, I will text them and can you find out information? And you have to double, triple verify it before actually putting it out as fact. And I mean, even for myself, I don't put the videos out of these military movements. I have a file of them and document every single one of them. I don't put the military movements out, but occasionally a few of them, I will text someone and say, you know, is this, uh, did this happen you know, in recent days. So I think with this, it's very easy to corroborate whether these images are are um, true or not. And from China-based platforms to US-based ones, I'm just curious, Shane, if you have any sense or, you know, would anticipate that the US government is collaborating with US-based platforms at all on this. In, we know that in the run-up to the 2020 election, for example, they did have these war room meetings uh, where they sat a bunch of the platforms down and shared some intelligence about what to look out for. I'm curious if you think that that relationship is ongoing. I don't know if it's ongoing in this particular instance. Um, I will say that in addition to that example that you cite, I think there's some evidence that the British government, uh, after this poisoning of Sergei Skripal, kind of found a way to shall we say, push information out that then made it easier for OSINT places like Bellingcat to pick up. And I know that's not necessarily direct collaboration, but it gives you a sense that I think that government, well, I know the government intelligence agencies are keenly aware of both the power of open source intelligence and the reach of those platforms and also the investigative capabilities uh, of those platforms as well. So I think that in this case, you know, I know from talking to sources in the intelligence community that the open source intelligence has been a significant component of the daily stream that is coming in that intelligence analysts are using to make their judgments that they are then giving to the policymakers. Uh, and that's an important piece of this as well, because in addition to obviously the satellite imagery and government has great satellite capability, even more sophisticated than the commercial providers, in addition to the kind of unique communications or signals intelligence that the government either has or has access to from allies, this OSINT piece has been really significant. And I was struck by that in talking to some sources, the degree to which they said that this is really helpful to us because we can look at it in real time. It can be corroborating. Uh, it can give us leads. And so I think that even if they're not uh, if the government and the uh, and the platforms are not sitting down or even the OSINT kind of, you know, well, the OSINT in this case providers are just individual users, there is definitely an awareness, I think, on the part of the government about how important those sources are. And while I don't know this for a fact, I would, I would have to think that if you're a Twitter or, or, you know, or a TikTok or whoever, you must have some sense at this point that the information that's on your platform is actually being consumed by intelligence agencies. Um, if, they, if they don't understand that, like now would be a good time for them to get wise to that, I think. So as we said at the top, uh, things are moving extremely quickly. What are you both going to be watching going forward? What particular things should we keep our eyes on as the crisis continues? Olga, let's go to you first. Well, I mean, they're moving so quickly that uh, during this recording now, um, Ukrainian uh, government agencies are all under a cyber attack. So uh, that's how quickly. So now there's a widespread uh, cyber attacks um, in Ukraine happening. I am watching, which I have warned because, you know, I've been doing this for a long time, dealing with Russia, dealing with Ukraine. And 
I have put out warnings that Russia seems to have us specifically focused on eastern Ukraine. This is an area that they have occupied for eight years. And I feel that they want us, all the terrorist attacks, all the humanitarian crisis and everything else they're manufacturing, to have us trained to this specific area. Meanwhile, I'm still confirming with a source, but um, apparently in Moldova, in the Transnistria, which is Russian-occupied territory, um, the leaders went to Moscow to request basically the same status of uh, Russia recognizing them as Russian territory. And, you know, and my worry is that whatever happens can come from Belarus, it can come from Transnistria, it can come, you know, further up. Uh, along the Russian border. So I think we have to be very, like, you know, be very open to monitoring everything and not be specifically trained where the Kremlin wants us to be focused on. Also, another point, Russia believes in using um, dates, um, you know, key dates, like with Anna Politkovskaya, she was, you know, killed on Putin's birthday. And we saw that uh, Russian troops moved into Ukraine on February 22nd. That was the first images that came out into eastern Ukraine on February 22nd. That is eight years since uh, the ex-president of Ukraine, Yanukovych, fled. He fled on um, February 22nd, 2014. Today is February 23rd, and today is one of their biggest holidays, which kind of, you know, commemorates the, the creation of the Red Army. And it's a very, very big holiday. So, you know, just to show that Russia also does a lot of their activities on key dates in order to kind of send a message. And I think that, uh, you know, cyber attacks have been another one to pay close attention to. And as Olga said, as we're talking now, it looks like they're going on, which would be another sign of escalation. I'm paying really close attention to Kiev, the capital, uh, on, on, on two fronts. One would be, you know, if Russia, of course, launches a military action on the capital. I mean, this, I think, is sort of, you know, overused phrase, but the nightmare scenario that that Putin would try and go for the whole country or that he would try and, you know, attack the capital or even try to, you know, kind of put it into a siege, that obviously would be the worst of outcomes. Uh, uh, you know, we'll see. But also to that point, I'm paying close attention to whether or not the Ukrainian government leadership remains there. There have been reports uh, that U.S. officials have at least tried to I don't know if persuade is the right word, but I have said to President Zelensky, you know, look, if, if things get very bad, we want you to let us evacuate you out of Kiev and get you to safety maybe in Lviv or someplace else. That would obviously be a very troubling signal that something bad was about to happen. Um, so I kind of pay you know, close attention to that in addition to all of the other military movements, which you know, we'll be able to see. But that's where I'm keeping my eye uh, now to let me know if this thing has gone really uh, uh, to maybe to, to the worst place. And we, and we certainly hope that it does not. All right. Unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. Olga, Shane, thank you so much for taking the time to record this. Thank you. It was really great. Thanks for doing it. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare podcast series on our online information ecosystem. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare podcast feed, and in our separate Arbiters of Truth podcast feed, and we'll be back with another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Gann. 
Our audio engineer was Hamza Shitu, and our producer is Jen Pachi Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare podcast and Arbiters of Truth on whatever app you use, and consider becoming a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>